Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody that understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Yeah, hi everybody, this is Kevin Folda and I'm here at Talking Biotech and last week I do apologize for not uh, putting up an episode. I had material ready to go in the queue but just didn't get around to it and uh, no excuses but very good reasons. Uh, those of you who are familiar with, the, uh, with my situation outside of the podcast world is that uh, I am a scientist who's currently under a public records request, which means that my information, uh, emails have been requested and, and have been provided to activist groups that are interested in understanding my relationship between uh, me and the biotech industry. And it was all kind of sparked by the fact that I was answering questions on GMO Answers, which is a industry-sponsored website, which raised the uh, antennae of uh, activist uh, groups who felt that, you know, here's a scientist who's talking about science in the public. There must be something wrong. You know, obviously he's got something hide hidden or he's you know, in some great collusion or whatever. And um, this is not the time or place to discuss it. Um, if I did, it would take three weeks of episodes. So I'm going to set a timer for one minute. And I'm just going to kind of, uh, as, the, as the kids say, freestyle through it. Okay, hang on. Uh, here we go. Here's the timer. And when you hear it go off, I'm done. So uh, my university released the documents on June 18th, and I was told about it on July 30th. So in the last two weeks, it's been extremely stressful just trying to figure out what they released. It's 5,000 pages of documents that um, I had no idea what it was. I didn't really care. I don't have anything to hide. And in going through those documents, really found not anything that was, uh, uh, nothing illegal, nothing really unethical, nothing problematic at all. But certainly a lot there that someone who wanted to harm a scientist or take out a communicator could use for those purposes and we've seen that unfold not only has a lot of uh, a lot of press been made many words spent on a donation to my science communication program which does not fund this um, there's uh, there's also an issue of 
uh, other words that have been taken out of context. And when you look, oh, that means I'm done. All right, I'll finish that thought. Okay, I'll finish that last thought. Um, there's clearly information online that um, has been provided. So an email has been extrapolated to mean something it doesn't. And everything in that email was taken out of context. And it was done strictly with the idea of harming me, harming my reputation, and putting something into my record. You know, the Internet is that now permanent record. Uh, so anyone who looks up my name from now on, maybe they want me to come talk to their kid's school, maybe they want me to come out and do a science communication seminar, they'll see that I'm uh, at least there's one allegation out there, which has been repeated by others, that... Um, I'm a paid advisor of a big ag company to defeat uh, labeling initiatives. You know, all of this is completely contrived, and I really encourage you to look this up. Um, I don't have the blog posted yet, but if you look up information about uh, my advising, um, let me see what would be some good keywords. Uh, use Thacker, T-H-A-C-K-E-R, as your keyword. He was one of the authors that uh, misrepresented my uh, email unbelievably. I mean, took an email that I didn't even write, that I was CC'd on or forwarded to, and made it look as though I was some uh, great industry uh, PR guidance and uh, I actually was being very critical. Of the, anyway, it's more than a minute. I said I'd spend a minute. Don't let me go there. Let's talk about today. Today we got two great talks. And the first one is an excellent interview with uh, Andrew McKimi from Oxitech, where they talk about the biotech mosquito and ways in which it can help spread diseases or help stop spread diseases. <laughs> of um, That wouldn't be such a hot item. Uh, how it stops spreading I am um, diseases like dengue and chikamunga or, or whatever that one is and uh, and uh, other uh, diseases that are mosquito borne and the second half of this I'm visited by an old friend it's uh, my former student uh, PhD student uh, Phil Stewart who's been out in the world as a plant breeder for many years now uh, making a, a wonderful career for himself recently covered in Bloomberg and he joins me to talk about careers in plant breeding. And if, and if you are a student, if you're a parent, if you're a relative of someone who is looking for some career guidance and some advice, think about careers in plant breeding because we need people who can go back and design the next generation of food crops. And in case of biotech, you need a very strong genetic background to add that one or two traits of interest. So without uh, any... Uh, Further delays, we'll move ahead to our interviews with Dr. Andrew McKinney. Uh, we're very excited today to talk to Dr. Andrew McKinney, um, who's from Oxitech in Oxford, UK. Uh, he's the head of field operations, and uh, and uh, he's here with us today on Talking Biotech. Hello, Dr. McKim- Dr. McKinney. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. It's a really great topic, and uh, it's been in the news lately, so it, it's great that you could be here, because I get lots of questions on mosquitoes and the release of transgenic mosquitoes. Uh, let's start out by talking about the problem. So what what is uh, happening with mosquito-borne illnesses, and where do most of them occur? Sure. Well, I mean, the one stark reality is mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal in the world responsible for more deaths than any other animal 
in in yeah in the whole of the world. So just to put that into context, um, I'm working specifically on a species of mosquito which transmits dengue fever. Um, now dengue fever affects nearly one in two people in the world. It, it, it's, um, it's a disease you can pick up right throughout the tropic region in the world. So it's, it's a huge problem, second only to uh, malaria in terms of number of people affected and the economic burden of, of disease. Um, just, just to follow on the question about where do most of these diseases occur, um, it tends to be the more tropical regions um, where mosquitoes prolifer proliferate more, more readily. And for most of, it, well, all of the diseases transmitted by mosquitoes, the mosquito is the main vector for that disease. So where you have the mosquito, you have the potential for the disease transmission. Okay. Well, there's lots that's done, though, with mosquito control now. I mean, most places can use some sort of chemicals or something like that. So what, what's the problem with using those strategies? Sure. Um, so let's, let's think about just this one disease, dengue, and this species of mosquito, Aedes aegypti, which is the principal vector. Um, in the last uh, 50 years, it's increased 30-fold throughout the globe. Um, the species originated in sort of northern Africa and um, has spread globally with people. Now, despite using the best technology available, current tools, we've failed to stop the spread of this disease and this mosquito. You know, even using the best tools with the most well-funded uh, mosquito control uh, authorities, you're lucky to get 30% suppression of the mosquito population. And that really is another the problem. That's why we still have such huge problems with this uh, disease and mosquito-borne diseases throughout the world at the moment. So where is dengue fever now? And with the changing climates and warmer temperatures, how is that affecting it? And is it moving to new areas? So dengue fever um, is found throughout most of the tropical region of the world. Um, roughly one in two people are at risk of dengue fever. And with, as you say, with, with the sort of concerns of uh, global warming, the geographical regions which dengue would inhabit is actually growing. The way it works is dengue is uh, transmitted predominantly by one species of mosquito, Aedes aegypti, and to a lesser extent by a closely related species, Aedes albopictus. And both these species are found in the warmer tropical regions, but as the world gets warmer, their geographical spread will spread into the, um, the cooler, cooler climates and the disease will follow. So is it a virus or a bacterium? What is exactly is the mosquito transmitting? And does it, is it simply that it gets, how does the mosquito get infected in the first place? Okay, so um, dengue is transmitted by um, a virus. It is a virus. And it's, um, it's a simple process. It, the, the host is a human host, and it's transmitted by the mosquito. So a mosquito will take a blood meal, and one thing to, to note with regard to our technology, it's only the female mosquitoes which bite and take a blood meal. They, they need the blood meal to, to get the proteins to produce eggs. So a female mosquito will, will, will bite somebody, 
and pick up the, the virus. That virus will replicate within the mosquito. And after about seven days, that mosquito will then become infective. So when it goes and bites another person, it can transmit that virus into the next person. And they will then, you know, can, can pick up the, the, the virus and suffer the, the consequences. And it doesn't affect the mosquito at all? It's benign to the mosquito? It's, yeah, it's relatively benign to the mosquito, yeah. Okay, so if, how does the approach that Oxitec has developed work as a control? So in other words, like, I guess uh, you, you mentioned males aren't even the ones who are biting you, but as I understand, the Oxitec approach targets the male. So what is, what, how does your approach work? Sure, so if I can take one step back and, and talk about the sterile insect technique, which is a well-established uh, insect control method, um, which was the inspiration of our, our technology. Now, the sterile insect technique was developed over 50 years ago for the control of agricultural pests and has been phenomenally successful. Um, and in essence, what the way it works is you rear hundreds of th- and thousands or millions of insects and they get sterilized using irradiation. Then you release the, the insect you're trying to work with into the environment and the male insects which are now sterile will seek out the the pest insects the female pest insects mate with them but because they're sterile there won't be a subsequent generation and by sustained release of these sterile males you can achieve control in population just to give you an example of some of the successes in agriculture there's a particularly nasty veterinary pest called the new world screw worm which affects yeah, cattle and, and livestock and used to be endemic to the whole of the southern US right down through Central America. And with the use of the sterile insect technique, um, we've been able to eliminate this pest from the whole of southern US and Central America. So, you know, the technology can, can actually work on a continental scale and the US for many years now has been free of this very nasty veterinary pest. That's just one example of, of where it's been used in agriculture. So if it works so well, why haven't we done it with mosquitoes? Well, the, the reason really is, is the mechanism for achieving the sterility. It's, uh, it's blasting them with irradiation. And although it's worked with some agricultural pests, we've never succeeded um, to achieve this for mosquitoes. They're much smaller, more fragile. And the dose of radiation required to achieve sterility basically makes them so ill they're ineffective at going out and finding those female pests in in the wild. So despite many years of attempting to use the conventional uh, irradiation technology for for mosquitoes, it's failed. And this is where the the sort of the the original founder of the technology, a professor at Oxford University, you know, came up with the, the idea of how can we use genetic technology um, to to improve this conventional sterile insect techno- technology. That makes sense because it seems like it would be such a razor's edge of a uh, of a uh, application of radiation between sterilizing but not killing and having decent penetration in that set of mosquitoes. Because uh, you, you know between killing and not sterilizing is is a seems to be a pretty big range. 
And here you have the opportunity to use a genetic engineering technique to essentially suppress um, fertility in every single male. And so how does that mechanism work? What, what is the target inside the male mosquito? Okay, so th- this is a the really neat system um, that was developed at Oxford University. Essentially, we we introduced two genes into the the pest insect, which is which are inherited from generation to generation. One of them is a self limiting uh, gene, and the other is a, a marker gene. So I'll start with the self limiting gene. This gene basically is is every single male that we release and I just reiterate here we only release males which don't bite so pose no risk of transmitting disease so every male we release contains a copy of the self-limiting gene and they'll seek out and mate with a pest uh, female mosquito in the environment that's what they're you know evolutionally designed to do seek out those females and mate with the female and the offspring of that mating will contain this gene as well. And in essence, this gene stops the, the progeny developing to adults so you don't get subsequent generations. So the, the outcome is the same as a sterile insect technique in terms of the males go out, mate with the pest uh, females, and the following generation won't develop. Okay, so you say there's a self-limiting gene, but what do you know what that gene does or how specifically it disrupts the male fertility? Sure, so it, it essentially interferes with the cellular mechanism of, of making proteins, and that leads to the juvenile stages of the insect failing to develop properly. Now, the, the clever part of the technology is how do you stop this, this self-limiting gene working in your laboratory or in your mass rearing facility where you want to produce millions of insects? And that's where the technology uses a, a genetic switch. So by the use of an antidote, which is added to the, to the diet or to the rearing medium, um, this turns off the, the self-limiting trait in the gene so under these conditions, um, the insect will, will develop normally and you can produce your, your hundreds of thousands or millions of insects. But in the environment, um, the, the antidote we use um, is not a naturally occurring chemical. So without the, uh, the antidote present, the self-limiting gene kicks in and we've, you know, we have the the juvenile insects failing to develop. Okay, so just to clarify a little bit, I've, I've read something on this, and it seems like, so you have a, let me just make sure I get this straight so that it's clear for everybody who's listening, that you sure. have a some sort of an inhibitor of, of, say, protein synthesis, so something that may be inhibiting translation or somehow locking into that mechanism. And without that mechanism, it's very difficult to transition through different developmental states. So the whole time you go from... Uh, you know, egg to uh, larvae and then larvae into pupae for pupation and then um, pupation into adulthood, there's all kinds of genetic uh, switches or I should say genetic transitions that occur in tons of different genes that are expressed in new proteins that are needed. And so you're able to disrupt that process 
yet to have normal development, which you need to rear the male mosquitoes in the first place, you can use something like, and I think in this case it's an antibiotic, that suppresses the, uh, the promoter. So the gene control region is turned off in the presence of this drug that uh, you refer to as an antidote. But this, this repressor, um, in the presence of this repressor, turns this mechanism off so the mosquitoes are normal. Then when they leave the rearing facility, they no longer have this antibiotic repressor and they can, uh, and now they all become uh, impaired with protein synthesis. Is that, that seems to be pretty much it, right? That's it. Yeah, that's exactly it. We'll put. <laughs> okay, now just just I, it, it, this is uh, one of the most important parts of this whole podcast is communicating the idea so that everybody can talk about it when it when they're asked and hopefully the layman hopefully you know we were we're I think the majority of listeners are not scientists and they uh, they know this product and they know this approach at least they've heard of it and uh, lots of people have been here and where I live in Florida working hard to scare the pants off of people about mosquitoes that are transgenic yet here's a by when they we let them inside the black box and explain it to them in a way they can understand then you know they get kind of excited you start to see how this is a beneficial technology and so you've been uh, so in the laboratory how how extensively has this been tested and how do we know that this is a safe product to be releasing into the environment okay so this the original transformation was conducted in 2002, and since then we've been on a program of, of continuous evaluation and safety testing, starting at, you know in small-scale laboratory studies, and it's a stepwise uh, development, um, moving through into larger cage studies and then eventually into open-release uh, field evaluations. Just to give you a bit of context, um, we've now gone through over 150 generations of the original transformation, and there's been no change in the, uh, the, the phenotype, or how can I put that, in the effect of the genes that we've introduced. So it's remained stable um, for 150 generations. Um, and just to, to think about that in terms of human you know, if that was human generations, that would be taking us back to the time of the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Um, so extensive laboratory evaluation. This is conducted not only by us, but by in, in a variety of independent evaluators in universities and national institute, institutes throughout the world. Then after those laboratory studies, as I mentioned, we, we, talk, we move into cage studies where we check that our mosquitoes will mate with the counterpart pest uh, mosquitoes found in the field and will the offspring fail to develop as expected. And we found that to be the case consistently. And that's led on to initial small-scale releases in the field where we were looking at things like uh, the ability of our males to mate with uh, the pest females in the environment and you know, would that uh, mating with the pest females translate into the inheriting of the gene and and the subsequent gen- generations not developing? And then we move on to, you know, the, the, the ultimate aim of the technology is can you suppress wild pest populations of the mosquito? 
and we've we've conducted a number of studies of increasing scale uh, where we've successfully uh, done that. In every instance, we've reduced the the pest population by over ninety percent, which is a, a phenomenal result. That is, it's really impressive. Well, I guess one of these trials was recently in Brazil. I, I seem to remember reading something about this in the last few weeks. That's right. We've recently published a, a paper in uh, PLOS uh, NTD, um, a respected journal in, in sort of uh, tropical diseases. That study was relating to a suburb of a city in Brazil, which is you know, really endemic for dengue, really suffers uh, heavily with the Aedes aegypti mosquito. And, you know, when we turned up, the local vector control authority said, you know, if, if you want a, a real hotspot for, for the mosquito in this city, go and work in this suburb. So that's the challenge we took on. You know, can you control the mosquito with, with our technology? And I'm, you know, I'm glad to report we were able to do that, and not only do that, but reduce the the pest mosquito population by over ninety five percent. That's pretty incredible when you think about being able to do that, because I know traditionally we've relied on things like sprays and having uh, really elaborate programs that have used everything from trucks driving down the middle of the street with a fogger to uh, spray planes, and uh, how much chemical. Uh, does this save by using your approach over the traditional insecticide approaches? I, I mean, the, the, the hope would be that we could largely um, replace the use of insecticide for control of this, this mosquito. Um, I have to say, you know, we don't claim this to be a silver bullet, and I do believe, as with a lot of uh, complicated uh, solutions, we need to use all the tools available. So using... Uh, our technology and synergy with with insecticides is is an approach I think we want to look for moving forwards. And again, just just to unpack a little bit the way our technology works and could work in synergy, which is different to maybe traditional ways of thinking about insect control. With our technology, it's a sort of generational approach. So you you release your males and then they mate with uh, the pest females and the subsequent generation fails to develop. So you need to maintain this over several generations in order to achieve the levels of control we've we've demonstrated. And as each generation takes approximately a month, we're looking for about uh, between four to six months to achieve that very high level of control. When we move into a new area, what we really wanted to do is knock down that that initial population so that um, you can then start sequentially bringing down the remainder of the population. What we find with conventional insecticides is even with a very kind of well-funded and effective program, you might take out about 30% of the population. Those are, those are the best controlled um, you know, mosquito control programs. And ultimately, that's why we, we still don't have a solution for diseases like dengue. However, it's you know if you can bring down it by bring down the population by thirty percent and then take over with our technology, you can see that there is still you know uh, I, I believe an avenue for working in synergy to get the most efficient way of controlling pest populations. The other nice part about it is that you're also looking at a specific 
solution. You're not just killing uh, every insect that's out there, which which tends to be the case when you use broad spectrum insecticides. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the, the beauties of this technology. It's it's exquisitely specific to the one species. Um, and as you point out, one of the the downsides of of conventional insecticides is their broad spectrum. And they can impact many other uh, species, including beneficial species and, and you know, things like butterflies, which, which you might not want to get rid of. And a- another thing to think about, in terms of mosquito and disease control, you really are targeting the environment where people live. So unlike agriculture, where you might have a pest and, and there's a field somewhere else and you, you treat specifically that field, where the mosquitoes live is where people live. Specifically, Aedes aegypti, they're very um, tightly associated with people. So they rely on, on people for their blood meal. They feed almost exclusively on, on people. And they live in our homes. Um, the, you know, they, the resting sites are inside cupboards, under your bed, um, you know, in your bookshelf, that sort of area. So to target those those adult population effectively you have to go into people's homes into the environment and really use quite heavy doses of insecticide now the the beauty of our technology is we use males to to go in there and find those females and they they're able to do the job much more effectively than we can trying to target them with insecticides because they'll you know their millennia of evolutionary uh, <laughs> development has, has, has made them basically a female seeking machine mm-hmm um, so they target those females and the other sort of target of conventional control used to, to try and target mosquitoes is the breeding sites now mosquitoes breed in specifically this, this type of mosquito breeds in, in a clean water but they only need a small body of water you know something as small as a cup of water or a, a bit of a puddle in, the, in your drainage in your reef um, in your guttering, sorry, in your reef is sufficient for for these mosquitoes to breed. So you can imagine going into the house trying to target every single one of those potential breeding sites and all the adults hiding in your cupboards, under your bed, etc. It's, it's almost an impossible job to do with, with conventional vector control tools. And I guess that when you, so that takes out one of the big concerns is that here you're using less insecticide, you're trying to uh, actually have a positive ecological impact of mosquito control. But what about the issues where some organisms depend on mosquitoes, things like bats and some birds really uh, make uh, quite a, I don't know how much of their diet is mosquito, but quite a few of them at least are known mosquito feeders. And so how, what is the potential consequence on other trophic levels of uh, suppressing mosquito numbers? Sure. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I'll tackle that in a number of ways. Um, firstly, Aedes aegypti, um, the, the vector we're working with, which transmit dengue, is not native to to the majority of places which suffer from dengue now. It originated in northern Africa, and it's only in the last 200 years or so that it's spread globally. It's sort of like the, the, the mosquito equivalent of the rat, which is spread throughout the world um, f- following human, human spread. In the majority of places, if you, if you were able to achieve uh, substantial control of this species, 
you're not removing a native species. You're actually bringing the ecological balance to what it should have been originally. Another point is regarding to its its importance as a as a food for other species. Now, the mosquitoes, including Aedes aegypti, are not a keystone species in in a sort of food web in in any environment. So, there's plenty of insects, birds, fish, etc., which will will eat a mosquito, a mosquito larvae, if they came across one. But they're not dependent on it. So, if those mosquitoes weren't around, you know, they're you're not going to be losing some of those other species. Well, that's good because that's one of the big uh, things that critics have mentioned. One of the one of the central points that critics have mentioned. Uh, other critics, guys like uh, Joe Mercola on his website, have been uh, made statements regarding the Oxytec mosquito, and they actually and you can tell me how much of this is true, which my guess is it's probably approaching zero. Um, that the Oxytec mosquito is made from uh, herpes virus, E. coli bacteria, uh, coral, and cabbage. Uh, pieces um, and uh, at least the genes I guess is what I was referring to how much of that is accurate essentially um, we use a synthetic uh, DNA we produce uh, genes synthetically now they are inspired by various other organisms in nature but we, we use a synthetic DNA and that is what is introduced to the genetic makeup of our uh, transformed lines of insects and the specific uh, genetic switch switch me- mechanism um, that we use um, actually we've we've licensed off another company and it's one of the most widely used and well-tested uh, systems available for for this type of technology yeah and just to clarify for the listeners is that when we say synthetic all we're saying is that it's uh, it's a piece of DNA that uh, that we can order custom. We can call up a company, uh, the one we use is in Iowa here in the States. We call them up and say, we need this piece of DNA. And for about, I don't know, 10 cents a base, they'll assemble this custom piece of DNA. And then that DNA encodes the protein of interest. In this case, the um, the protein synthesis inhibitor. And uh, it's very easy to make synthetic genes, and sometimes they work a little better than their natural counterparts, even though the natural ones have been formed and shaped by selection. Once in a while, we can find a little tweak in the lab that makes them a little more effective coming through a synthetic uh, derivation. Um, so what are, what are some of the other big concerns that you've heard maybe at Oxytech, some of the things that you've read, um, and, and how do you address the doomsdayers best? How do you uh, make them feel a little better about the product? So, some of the environmental concerns we've covered already, I, I think the case for, for our technology, it has huge environmental benefits over existing technology like insecticides. Um, so I, I very much believe you know, from an environmental perspective, it's safe and it's a huge step forward from previous technology. Just the the question about the synthetic technology versus, uh, let's say, irradiation technology, which has been used previously to achieve sterility. Now, irradiation is a it achieves sterility, but it's through a random, uncontrolled process. Um, whereas, as you mentioned, because we're specifically ordering a synthetic piece of DNA, we know exactly what has been introduced to our insects. So from that point of view, I think we have a lot more control of what we're doing. One of the main concerns is um, 
a, a fear of the unknown, a fear of science um, and genetic technology. And it comes down to this fear that there's this letting a genie out of a bottle. You know, once it's released, once it's out there, there's no going back. And actually, our technology um, doesn't suffer from that criticism because the very trait we're introducing is a self-limiting trait, which is designed to not reproduce in the environment. Because, yeah, that self-limiting gene we, we, we introduce means that subsequent generations, generations won't develop. Um, so if there were any unforeseen consequences, all we have to do is stop releasing our, our insects, our mosquitoes, and the genetic technology would disappear from the environment within one or two generations. And that's actually what, you know, one of the reasons why I, why I joined the company, because I saw in this this use of genetic technology had a way of, of delivering what I think are fanta- you know, fantastic benefits, but with a level of control which is unsurpassed. So that's one of, I think, the most critical um, aspects to the technology and how we address the, the fears people have. Well, it's actually a, a genie that once you release it from the bottle, spends its whole life trying to get back in the bottle. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So let's, um, and just to kind of conclude, maybe we could talk about some of the um, additional applications. And what about uh, diseases like this chikungunya or um, malaria, some of the other mosquito-transmitted diseases? Are there species that are um, now being targeted by Oxitech that could help in these diseases? And and one other, I guess I one other thought along that line is that what about places like here in the Florida Keys where they don't have dengue yet, at least not on any significant epidemiological level, and so people are really pushing back against the technology. But what would you tell them about it, the utility to start early with releasing this kind of mosquito? If I could just start with the the last question there about the Florida Keys. Um I think you're correct as in they don't have um, endemic dengue at the moment, but they have had it in the past, most recently in 2009 and 10, and it was due to an outbreak of dengue there that the local vector control authority um, actually invited us because that you know they they're a very well funded um, vector control group, uh, and in all the sort of mosquito control departments I've worked with throughout the world, they're one of the most efficient and well-funded, and are using the very latest technology, which is mostly uh, insecticides, available at the moment, and they simply um, are struggling to control Aedes aegypti. So they, they invited us to, to come and say, you know, is, is this technology applicable? And their mandate is to stop dengue moving into the, to the Florida Keys. Now, as I mentioned before, dengue is spread throughout the world, and it spreads throughout the world on the back of Aedes aegypti. And Aedes aegypti is is very prefer- um, you know is found in very high numbers in the Florida Keys. So you have the ingredients there for for dengue and disease to spread. Um, all you need is is a bit of introduction of of dengue from somebody who's come back from South America um, or some other country where it's endemic and you have the potential of an outbreak of dengue. So I hope that addresses, you know, from the mosquito control 
perspective, it's a, it's a preventative measure. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's not a big problem at the moment, but if you just look at the other regions in the Caribbean, it's a huge problem. And if you can continue to be successful and be proactive against um, this disease moving in, um, you know, we should use the, the latest technology available. Another sort of huge issue um, which, which is on the up, which uh, makes conventional control ever more difficult, is the rise of insecticide resistance. So Aedes aegypti is very adept at becoming resistant to the various different uh, pesticides that are being used to target it. And, and, you know, people are starting to run out of effective chemical controls. So you need to be thinking about what is the next solution. Otherwise, you, you have the prospect of, of, of having a resistant population for which you've got no effective measures to control. And what about the other diseases, like things like the uh, chikungunya or malaria or some of the other mosquito-borne diseases? Are they other species of mosquitoes, and are there efforts underway to address those diseases by limiting their vectors? Yeah, so let's take chikungunya. That's a, a disease which has sort of come to prominence in the last few years. If we just look at the Caribbean since introduction um, a couple of years ago, um, there's been over a million cases of chikungunya. This is another virus with very similar symptoms to dengue and is also principally transmitted by the same species, Aedes aegypti. Um, so by reducing the population of this uh, species, Aedes aegypti, we hope to not only um, safeguard people against uh, dengue but also chikungunya. And there's, a, there's another virus called Zika virus, which, is, which has come to prominence quite recently as well, which also is transmitted to, by Aedes aegypti. So targeting this one species, we hope to be able to, to help in the, in the fight against these uh, um, virus diseases. Another thing to point out with, with these viruses is um, there is no vaccination and there's no medication for it. So the only real way of controlling these diseases is by controlling the mosquitoes which transmit them. And, you know, that is the recommendation by the various, uh, you know, WHO and and national uh, disease control agencies. Now, you also mentioned malaria. Uh, Malaria is um, the the biggest uh, mosquito-borne disease in terms of its impact on people, number of cases in the world. We certainly hope to be able to use the technology to tackle um, mosquitoes which transmit uh, malaria in the future. Um, The issue with malaria is it's slightly more complicated because there's more than one predominant species which transmits malaria. So in some instances, you might need to, to target two or three species of mosquitoes to get effective control of malaria. So, you know, we're a small company. We're only about 50 people. Um, and it's, it's a case of let's try and demonstrate this technology with, with one species. Um, and that's why we've picked the, the principal vector of dengue. And we hope, you know, the success of this would lead to sort of further funding to be able to use the same technology in the other vectors of, of mosquito-borne diseases, including malaria. 
And that's that's kind of a theme that we're seeing more and more is that we have a good solution that can solve problems for people. It isn't, uh, you know, big agriculture, big pharmaceutical companies. These are uh, smaller companies that come up with a solution that can radically change the profiles of illness and, and sometimes even death in human populations, or frequently death in human populations. Yet it seems to me that the public perception of this really slows its application. And uh, what has OxyTech done to uh, better communicate the, the, the upside of this technology? And uh, maybe just to kind of conclude, where could people find more information about it? And are you present on the web or on Twitter, something like that? Sure. Um, so a, a huge amount of uh, certainly my focus and, and OxyTech as a company is just trying to communicate the the safety of this technology and to to dispel some of the fears people have um, and we have to do that at, at many different levels so let's start with the actual communities or the villages in which we're working in we do before we start any releases we do extensive uh, program of community engagement you know going to schools speaking to the kids going door to door uh, I very much believe in in the teams operating in these places have to get to know the neighbourhoods so people feel comfortable that they there's a, f- a face they know that they can actually express their concerns. Um, what one one tool we use actually, which is really effective, is to take a cage of these uh, mosquitoes, male mosquitoes, uh, round the community, and we can put our arm in there and demonstrate that they don't bite. That, as you can imagine, would be a, a huge concern if you're in a, in a village and somebody said, oh, we're going to release lots of mosquitoes. You know, what's going to happen? But we were able to explain the technology. We only release males. They don't bite. Show people this. And, and, and you know, they're largely, um, you know, very reassured by that. So that's, that's on the very much the community level on the ground. Um, then there's a, a lot of work with the scientific community. It's a very new technology. We, we you know, have to explain that um, through scientific, uh, you know, journals, peer-reviewed journals, um, as well as conferences, etc. And working with um, the government and regulatory bodies. So everywhere we go, we have to work with um, the relevant regulatory bodies. So that's a very important part of part of our communication and lastly but not least is all the different channels and media so um print radio i mean the the work you're doing is fantastic um just trying to leverage every channel we can to get the 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 message that our technology is safe and also to to get the the understanding of the technology the basic technology because i think once people understand what the technology is about they're reassured. It's often the, the lack of knowledge, which, which with a bit of um, sort of scaremongering, can result in fear. But if if we can explain the technology, people are reassured about its safety. And there's a really good TED talk too that comes from your company. I don't remember the gentleman's name. Um, do you know this one? Can you cite that for us? That's right. It's Hayden Parry. Yeah, Hayden uh, Perry. Yeah, so TED Talk. Yeah. If you look up OxyTech Mosquito and um, on on uh, in TED in a search engine, this one does come up and gives a very nice explanation of the technology. 
And what about Twitter and other places on the web where we could get updates from uh, Oxytech? Sure. So um, we've got a, a, a dedicated website let's, for, for the Florida Keys trial, which is www.oxytech.com forward slash Florida. So you can go there to find information about the specific trial in the Florida Keys. We, ha- we have similar websites for you know, projects in Brazil and elsewhere. Um, we've also got an email if you have any questions. That's one word is floridatrial at oxytech.com. And then we also have on Facebook and Twitter at Oxytech. So all those different channels, you can, you can look up information and, and get in touch if there's any specific questions um, you have. So thank you very much, Dr. Andrew McKimi. Um, you're the head of the uh, field operations at Oxitech. I really appreciate your time today. It's, it's a great explanation of what sounds like an absolutely wonderful technology. And uh, wish you all the best going forward. And uh, always reach out if you have any new developments, because I'd be happy to talk about them here. Great. Thank you for your time. Okay. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Hi, Talking Biotechers. This is Vern Blazek of the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour. Now, while my podcast is on hiatus, I'm busy like a bee promoting Talking Biotech podcasts. Now, what can you do to help me spread the message? Well, this mothership isn't monetized. It's paid 100% by Fulta out of its grocery budget. No external funds will be accepted. So you can help by spreading the word. Tell a friend. Hell, tell someone you don't like. Scratch Talking Biotech podcast into the bathroom stall at Chipotle. Maybe even hang a note on the Whole Foods Shamans and Healers bulletin board. Most of all, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Spread the word on Twitter. Or use social media to talk about something really cool you heard here on the podcast. The bottom line is, this is about science and how science has helped people improve plants, medicine, and animals, and stands to further improve varieties with the precise tools of biotechnology. Okay, so today on uh, the Talking Biotech Plant Genetic Improvement section, it's really a little bit different. Normally, we talk about a given crop and kind of the backstory of the domestication and genetic improvement through traditional breeding of, of something that we find in our produce aisle. And a couple of weeks ago, on July 29th, actually last week, um, I read the article in Bloomberg Business, How Driscoll's is Hacking the Strawberry of the Future. And uh, strawberries being an interest of my research, I thought I would read a little further. And only to find out that the article was really centrally focused on a guy named Dr. Phil Stewart. And uh, Dr. Phil Stewart is um, uh, someone I know pretty well because uh, he probably, he landed in the state of Florida about the same time I did in the same lab and uh, where I was there to uh, learn about research in strawberries, he was there to do a PhD dissertation in strawberries and uh, that's where I met Phil and we went from there. Hi Phil, how's it going? Hi, Kevin. It's going great. Thanks for having me on. And uh, the reason I wanted to have Phil on is because he's had a very successful career in industry as a breeder. 
and a few weeks ago we had a um, discussion with um, uh, um, I think it was Pat Heslop Harrison and said you really should have somebody on to talk about plant breeding about the discipline about the future and about how industry and academia are really hurting for qualified plant breeders and how many people get excited about listening to a podcast about biotechnology and don't realize that the majority of the genetic improvement has to happen in that first plant. So Phil's here today to talk to us about that. And if you want to read the article, it's uh, in Bloomberg Business on uh, July 29th, 2015. So Phil, let's start out with a couple quick things. Um, Just start out by telling me about where you work and uh, what your daily life is like and what the goals of your position are. So I work for uh, Driscoll's in Watsonville, which is um, one of the biggest berry companies in the world. Uh, And my title is Principal Scientist Strawberry Breeding. So my job is to lead Driscoll's strawberry variety improvement programs uh, in North America. And uh, we support uh, primarily the U.S., but also Driscoll's locations worldwide. We also have European programs that I'm not directly involved in. But um, the... uh, the primary purpose is is variety development, and I also get involved a little bit on the business side, talking about what our variety mix should be and and how different varieties are, are likely to, to fare in different locations. And that's really important because whether you're growing something, say, in um, in an organic field down in Mexico or, or San Diego County, is very different from what you might be growing, say, up by the Bay Area. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in... North America alone, we have six strawberry breeding programs, um, and that's because really to be competitive in all those areas, uh, you need varieties that are adapted to that particular set of conditions, and um, it's rare that we grow a variety in more than two production districts, and often only one. And it's, it's kind of even more interesting now as those production districts change and maybe as, you know, our, our uh, access to different fumigants and access to different um, other types of production inputs change, the cultivar types change. And, and as new markets are available for different flavors and stuff, uh, uh, do you find that there's uh, maybe some specific trends that you see emerging in strawberries? Um, well, I think... In in the span of my career, I think we've seen flavor uh, taking on greater importance. Um, you know, we've always sort of tried to position ourselves as a, a premium berry company. Um, I'm not sure that's always been true about the rest of the market, but with the introduction of Albion here in California, I think it woke a lot of people up um, to the fact that people really do care about what their their fruit tastes like, um, and you know. I think a lot of people who had just been focused on pounds of fruit started to kind of realize that there was money to be made on producing good fruit, too. Um, the Albion is a variety from the University of California breeding program. It actually was kind of interesting that California Strawberry Commission, maybe five years ago, had a, had a report they did that said that the average household really bought strawberries one time a year when you looked at all the averages. And it really did seem to signal to us at University of Florida that maybe there was something, uh, how do you get them to buy twice? And is it something as simple as uh, making sure you're really thinking about flavors 
and sensory quality in the strawberry at, at the breeding level because now you're going to have something they can taste and something maybe they'll just go, hey, we got to buy another one. Those were great. Yeah, and, it's a little bit of a wake-up call. You know, we, we, we feel like we're pretty big and we talk in terms of millions of dollars and things like that. But then you hear a figure like that and you think, well, geez, there are people who spend that on coffee every morning. So, you know, you could, it, 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 it gives you some perspective on how much room there is uh, to grow and to improve, expand our market. It is really true. If you think about that clamshell of strawberries costs, you know, between 2 and $3 here in Florida, it's amazing that you can get that for the price of a cup of coffee or less. And um, and so it, it maybe is a chance of for us as plant genetic improvers to uh, produce a product that helps to shift that a little bit. And even a small shift can make a big difference. And I guess um, maybe I could ask you some questions more about thinking about the people who are listening who are in that area of wanting to play and plant genetic improvement, but, you know, biotech and the laborious nature of getting traits approved, that kind of thing. Um, how much of a demand is there still for traditional plant breeders, just people who rub plant parts together or transfer pollen, that kind of work, the things that you do? I think there's there's still a pretty substantial demand for people to do classical breeding. Um, you know, when you look at the vast majority of the, the crops we eat, most of those are not coming out of, uh, you know, biotech-focused programs. But but what there is, I think, is a diminishing need for classical breeders who only know classical breeding. I think, you know, going forward, you, know, you may still be doing classical breeding, but you need to be able to talk the language of molecular biology, be able to collaborate with a molecular biologist, and sort of know what those technologies can and can't accomplish, and, you know, how to how to set up the correct collaboration to use those. I think in the future there there will be very few large breeding programs without at least some molecular component. Yeah, and just to be clear, when we're talking about a molecular component, we're not talking about adding genes by genetic engineering. We're uh, just talking about using molecular biology as a way to identify, say, molecular markers or pieces of DNA that tend to associate with a trait that's of interest to breeders. So breeders can um, essentially screen plants much earlier in their uh, development and be able to take good guesses at traits that may come along. So that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Right, absolutely. And so when you're, uh, and, and you did this really well. You were a, uh, you came to my lab where I'm kind of a one-trick pony back then. I, you know, I knew molecular biology really well and knew nothing about strawberries or farming or anything like that. Uh, the joke was uh, that I would need some strawberry trees. Um, and uh, it, it was really, uh, and that was a great time where we started to, to work together because you had such a solid botanical and, and, uh, and plant background, fruit background. And um, when you graduated, you know, we you were moving along mostly with a molecular, uh, some molecular training on a classical breeding background. But when you went to uh, your position in Driscoll's, what was it like there in terms of your ability to interact with molecular people? Um, I thought it worked, worked out pretty well. Um, in some ways, Driscoll's program at that time, um, it, was, it was very, you know, they could handle a lot of volume, but they weren't doing anything a lot of, uh, very complex. 
Um, and so it's taken us a while to kind of uh, take that ability to do large-scale things and also uh, you know, change that so we can also do really cool, involved things. Um, and then at the time, you know, I was also trying to figure out how to run a breeding program at the at the same time. So it was it was kind of a lot to take on, and we we went through a few uh, rough spots. But um, I'm really proud of where we are right now, and I think we've accomplished a lot. No, I think your the article really shows how deeply how much you've accomplished in that time. And when you look back at this, and uh, and and the same kind of projection going forward, you had a job waiting for you upon uh, walking across that PhD stage. And um, what does that outlook look like now, both in either academia or in industry for classical plant breeders? Well, I can't speak as much to academia. I, I think in general, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think the outlook is still pretty good on the academic side. Um, in the industry side, I think there's a lot of demand. You know, we, we find it's really hard to find the, the numbers of truly qualified people that we'd like, especially if, if you're trying to find somebody with a background in horticultural crops. Um, you know, there's, I think there's, there's a few more people out there on the agronomic side because those have sort of been the, the, the big driving breeding programs in, in industry for a while. Um, but to get somebody who gets horticultural crops plus has you know, a really solid background in both the the plant breeding and uh, enough familiarity with the molecular side to to be you know somebody who can work with our molecular program. It's really tough. We don't you know we we frequently only have you know sort through a giant stack of resumes and you may only have a handful left at the end that you really want to consider. Mm-hmm. I think that the outlook is pretty rosy in academia. I know we're hiring a. A fruit crops breeder, like a tropical fruit crops breeder for uh, down in Homestead. We're hiring a vegetable crop breeder to work with squash and other cucurbits, maybe some other interesting things. But in uh, up in Gainesville, we're, uh, we will be hiring a, um, a, a sweet corn breeder within the year. And uh, also at one of our other uh, locations in the horticultural sciences department, we're hiring a uh, lettuce breeder. So we have lots of really strong demand in our department for breeding expertise. And I, I think that uh, really what I was hoping maybe you could uh, share with us a little bit or we could kind of convince people together is that if you're someone who has kids who are thinking about a really great career where the work is compelling, it pays well, you can do cool stuff, um, plant breeding is something really to think about. And yeah, absolutely. What, what, what good to me. I, I think it's... It's a fun discipline um, because it's not really one discipline. You know, it's it's horticulture, it's genetics, it's plant pathology, it's molecular biology and bioinformatics, it's entomology, it's plant physiology. You know, I think it, it, one of the things that really attracted me to it is that you almost you didn't quite have to choose a field in the in the plant sciences. You could kind of touch on all of them. Um, and it's it's been a lot of fun, and you get to work with a lot of cool people and go a lot of cool places. Yeah, and so you're, in, and I could see how that would appeal to someone like you or me, because both of us are kind of cut from the same scatterbrain cloth. There, where you know you like to take on many different angles, and there's and every day is new. And but what but what kind of what kind of so if we wanted to even t- dial it back a touch to the idea of training for this kind of position. 
what kind of uh, qualifications or um, or classwork is in that successful resume in your hands that looks like a potential candidate? So it depends a lot on the job. You know, if if you're looking to lead a breeding program or lead a major chunk of the the research program, you're probably going to want a PhD. You know, I think there are there are exceptions out there. Um, and we have hired people uh, with masters with a fair amount of experience, um, and in the past, even some people with bachelor's degrees. But the direction things seem to be going is, if you really want to lead a program, either you know a breeding program or a research program, you probably need a PhD. Um, and that's not to say there are support positions within the breeding program for people uh, with different degrees. Um, but when you're looking at, at coursework, um, you know, one of the things I really want is, like I mentioned, a balance between um, actual hands-on, you know, mucking around in the dirt, handling the plants kind of plant breeders, and enough familiarity with molecular marker technologies, um, that sort of thing, that, you know, they're not going to get stuck in either one of those extremes. And I think at one point it was really hard to find those people um, because I think a lot of academic programs you know, had were led by scientists who were in one camp or the other. And I think that's starting to change, which is nice. Um, and I personally, in it, for our positions, I really like to find people who've worked with the horticultural crops. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't rule anybody out. Um, from an agronomic background, but I think the emphases are different, and um, and it exposes you to sort of a different set of concerns in breeding. Um, there's a much greater emphasis on quality and breeding for multiple traits at once. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to breed for multiple traits, you also have to be able to understand the science that goes behind those traits. So. So I think plant pathology is a really important aspect that, that you know, you want somebody to have at least some experience with, either through work or through coursework. Um, you know, one of the major things that almost every breeding program out there is looking at is disease resistance. Um, you know, there's also plant physiology, I think, is important. Uh, you know, one of the things that we deal with a lot and was uh, a focus of my research with you uh, is flowering in strawberries, which is also you know a major trait that is bred for in almost every crop because almost every crop you're depending on flowers to get yield, so the timing and productivity depends on that. That's all plant physiology, so that's important. Um, you know we're starting to think a lot about flavor and the components of flavor, so there's chemistry aspects to that. Um, it really it depends a little bit on the position, you know, how we emphasize those things. But I, I think really a, a successful plant breeder needs to have at least some familiarity with almost every aspect of, you know, that crop and how it's produced and, and what the concerns of the people who produce it are. And also more and more how the consumer feels and, and being aware of um, uh, how, uh, you know what's going to sell, and what what are the what's going to give uh, product A a little bit of a leg up over product B, 
And that's really an important consideration. And maybe you could speak to that a touch that, you know, a lot of times people say, well, our strawberries are not as good as they used to be. And how much of that is a deprioritization of consumer traits? Well, I think certainly that has happened uh, to some extent in the past. Um, we've always tried to position ourselves as a as a premium brand, um, and I think in general we've we've done pretty well with that. Um, certainly, the market's rewarded us, uh, but there's you know, like I mentioned, there's there's always a conflict when you're breeding um, because you're breeding for multiple traits, and so. You know, it's it's all well and good to say, well, we want all these things equally, but at the end of the day, you're left with a list of selections, and you know, none of them is going to ever have everything you want. So, you know, right there, sort of where the rubber meets the road, I think it's easy to go, well, this one's pretty good, but it yields really well, instead of saying this one tastes awesome and it yields okay. You know, so it's. It's all about kind of what drivers you put in place. Um, and I think because so many breeders interact either with growers or with a sales department or something like that, the yield can, can easily get sort of over-prioritized because we tend not to be talking directly to consumers. Um, so I think it's it's important to sort of sit down and put yourself in that position um, of the consumer when you're making your evaluations. One thing that we have done here that I think is a great tradition that I've tried to maintain with all the breeders I oversee is that the breeder themselves does all the shelf life evaluations. So I sit down, I did it this morning actually, I sit down with a bunch of fruit samples that have been in storage for a long while and I look at each of those and you know it's supposed to simulate uh, more or less a, a commercial experience, kind of harsh one, but but you know it's within the realm of possibility that somebody on the East Coast could go to the grocery store, get this fruit, and look at it and look like this. And I think it's really important that that you know we look at what the end consumer is going to buy and be able to say to ourselves, "This is something I want to eat," and not just eh, "It looks all right," you know. <laughs> um, because it's easy to get attached to the numbers and and um, the dollars, you know, we we figure out the the return on everything. It's really easy to go. Well, this this will make us a ton of money. We want this one. Because um, it's a lot harder to quantify the, the 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 quality aspects of it. So it's it's a constant challenge to to keep the priorities weighted correctly. I I think we do a pretty good job, but um, but it's not doesn't necessarily come naturally. I guess that's one exciting change, though, and maybe thinking about the way plant breeding is done, because my understanding was that so many fruits and vegetables had kind of the breeder tasting it in the field once it looked really decent and said, okay, this is acceptable or or better. And this new emphasis on really thinking about consumer preference, how something breaks down over time, uh, those are exciting new things to see under evaluation. What about the future? And what about uh, maybe new traits or novel traits in strawberry? Is there anything that you can tell us about, or is this all top secret? Well, the coolest stuff is all top secret, but uh, <laughs> no, that, I think I think you're going to see um, much greater emphasis on the flavor traits um, and aromatics specifically. 
Um, looking outside our established germplasm base, you know, strawberry has a very limited um, genetic base. I probably maximum of 50 individuals contributed all the genes and cultivated strawberries. And it's, you know, we've been shuffling those genes for a long time. We're still making progress, but I think if you truly want to move kind of, you know, if you want some, something like a step change in the area of flavor or other traits, um, I think you wind up having to look outside that, you know, current set of, of genes that we have in cultivated strawberry and start casting a little wider net. Um, so I think that's, that's one place we're going to be putting some, some emphasis. Um, the other thing that has become a big concern um, just in the time I've been breeding strawberries is focus on harvest efficiency. Um, you know, it's not an easy thing to quantify, uh, but in the past we've just sort of said, well, when it comes to the grower's bottom line, they care about yield, so we track yield. But we've got enough of a labor shortage here that it's not uncommon for fruit to get left in the field. So you want plants that are easy and quick to harvest. Um, and so that's changing things a lot. You know, I, I sort of – there was sort of an, a point where I was making great progress on yield, but then all of a sudden – the labor tightened up and I had a lot of selections that had great yield that were not going to be commercially viable because you'd never be able to get people to pick them. So that's, that's another aspect. And I think along with that comes the interest in mechanization. Um, There's a a couple companies working on robot strawberry pickers. And my guess is the robot varieties are going to want different things than a human picker. Um, in terms of what kind of varieties they perform best on. So there's a case where, you know, we know we're going to have to breed for it, but the actual requirements are a little fuzzy and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to breed for something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Well, we actually kicked around the idea of the robot probably a decade ago and uh, knowing that the labor shortages were on the horizon and, and you're right. Finding something that would grow maybe a longer pedestal or something that the thing the kind of little stalk that the fruit is on the end of, you know, now you're talking, and I know that in in uh, at, at our growers in our state have all said, um, or at least the organizations say, don't give us anything that's going to increase yields. We got enough berries in the market. What we want are higher quality. We want the same yields. We want um, just something the consumer has to come back for. And I think that's a really positive thing and a really good step forward. Um, and, and you mentioned this idea of looking outside of the normal germplasm. You know, we will have Jim Hancock on at some point to talk about uh, strawberry domestication and and um, and uh, improvement. And some of the interesting things there are just that there are so many wild types of strawberries with crazy flavors that I think we have only scratched the surface. And have, have you um, started any of that stuff or can you even talk about that? Yeah, so we, we've we've made hybrids um, with a number of species, um, both octoploid and lower ploidy. Um, the cultivated strawberry is octoploid, as you know. Uh, um, we've we've done a lot with some local chiloensis, which turns out to be pretty well adapted since it's growing here on its own, um, and that's probably. Uh, either one or both of the ancestors of the Burger King strawberry mentioned in the Bloomberg article. Um, 
I've got actually when we started this interview, uh, one of my coworkers came by and shook a, a bag in my doorway silently, and that contains uh, a bunch of accessions from the germplasm repository in Corvallis, Oregon, that we just got in. So um, we've got a number of species growing in the greenhouse right now. Um, I think that they're full of cool traits, uh, but when you get out of the octoploid level and you get into these interploid crosses, it's kind of a mess. Uh, you can wind up with a lot of sterility and um, you know not very functional plants. So uh, it's it's not easy. There's a reason why people have have kind of kept playing with the same little pool of genes, and uh, you know you, you take a big hit in a lot of ways when you go outside of it. But I think I think the payoff is there if if you if you're willing to put the effort and the resources into taking advantage of uh, some of those, those outside species. Well, that was really great, Phil. It was great to hear you again in, in real life and um, really nice to uh, talk about where your program is going and what's happening at Driscoll's. If people have questions for you, how would they reach you or where find you on social media? Uh, I think probably the easiest way is to just go ahead and email me. Uh, you could email me at strawberrybreeder at gmail.com. Shocking. That wasn't taken. I'm sure, there was intense competition. Um, or you can look me <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, you, you and five other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll sell it off to the highest bidder when I'm done with it. No, that's great. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us about this. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a really great opportunity. I wish I would have known I could have been a plant breeder. It would have been a wonderful place to be and um, much less controversial and uh, certainly um, would have been uh, something I would really enjoy because I, I really like working with all of you. And certainly, hey, super proud of where you are, Phil. You're doing great stuff. And thank you so much. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure being on. Okay, um, so that's Phil Stewart from Driscoll's and uh, talking about plant breeding. And really, plant breeding is the basis of what we think about in terms of plant genetic improvement, uh, rubbing those stamens and pistols together to make new stuff that we can eat. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Um, so once again, you know, uh, my name is Kevin Folta. You know, it's tough times in the biotech world and in biotech communication because people want us to stop doing this. Uh, talking about innovation excites others and it turns people on to what could be and what are the solutions that will go forward into the next generations. And, uh, you know, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm going through it. I'm seeing the effect of getting in front of a microphone or an audience or a keyboard and talking about science and technology because there always will be somebody who wants it stopped. Um, so I'll stop there before I get uh, too preachy. But, you know, if it's something you stand for, stand with me on this. Write your national organizations. Write the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, write uh, just even tweets to these organizations Stay stand, saying stand up for science and stand with those who defend science. And let's not let these activists drive what really is important, and that is biotech innovations or innovations that can really help us serve others as, as independent scientists. So thank you so much for listening to Biotech, Talking Biotech. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Talking Biotech and uh, hope to talk to you again next week. we got a really nice one coming up on Citrus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to Talking Biotech 
gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.